We're putting science in the spotlight. Hello, and welcome to another amazing episode of the Science Podcast in the Spotlight. My name is Emily Schaefer, and I am one of the hosts of the show alongside Nicholas Scruton Alvarado. In each of these episodes of the podcast, we interview a grad student or postdoc or other early career researcher in the sciences about their work. And our goal is to really make it as accessible as possible to everyone that has an interest in science. So maybe you're a fellow science grad student who's really sick of their own research and want to hear something fresh. Maybe you're a family member or a friend of the person that's being interviewed and you want to know more about what they do. Or maybe you're just some random person on the internet who thinks that science is really cool. Whoever you are, this podcast is for you because science is for you. And on today's episode, I can already tell this is going to be really fun because we're going to be covering a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. This might be the closest research area that we've ever gotten to my personal research, which is kind of cool. And so I'm speaking to today another biomedical engineer who might be just as fascinated, if not more fascinated by the brain as I am. And so I'm very lucky to introduce Megan Baker. Megan is a first year PhD student in biomedical engineering at UT Austin. Welcome, Megan. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So Megan, what made you want to become a scientist? So it happened kind of later in my life. So I have always been drawn to the STEM field, mostly because growing up, my mom was very big on making sure that I could have a career that I could provide for myself. So she kind of pushed me towards medicine and all this stuff. And that's kind of what got me interested in the medical side. And then in high school, there, I have a distinct memory of my brother dropping a bowling ball on his finger and me not being able to handle it at all. Like couldn't look at it, couldn't even think about it. Like I was like, okay, so can't be a doctor, got it, okay. And I got lucky in that in one of my classes, we were reading a couple papers on stem cell research and using that technology to regrow muscles for veterans. And that's what introduced me into the field of biomedical engineering. And I was like, okay, perfect. I can find a good job as an engineer. I'll make good money. And I still get to be tangential to the medical field. So I started my undergrad and was set on doing prosthetics or something like that and going into industry and making money and just being content with that. But my senior year, I got really lucky and got involved in some research on campus that was just kind of some small like brain computer interface stuff one of my favorite professors had set up and that gave me the opportunity to go to the society for neuroscience conference in 2018 and it was that conference that completely solidified my entire career path so i remember it was one of the last days we were at the conference we were really tired and we decided to sit in on this panel where the research subjects talked about their experience on the other side of this kind of research world field, whatever. And so they talked about how their life had improved by participating in these experimental studies where they either got prosthetics that connected back into their system and allowed them to feel again, or were able to control a robotic arm, or one of them had a stimulation that 
his brain controlled and basically it would have electrodes on his arm and would kind of stimulate his muscles so he could use his hand again. And I remember just like sobbing in the back of the room, hearing all of these stories. And it was like, okay, I've always wanted to do something with my life. And after hearing all of this, I'm like, this is it. Like this, it just kind of clicked. And I knew that that is exactly what I wanted to do was to make this kind of impact. And that's when I decided that I was going to get my PhD and go into the scientific field. That's such a great story. And I can imagine that that would be like so impactful to hear. Yeah, it was really cool. I still think about that a lot. When I have days where I'm kind of getting frustrated with my research or just really tired, like that's a really easy pick me up is just thinking about the people on the other side who potentially had no hope before some of the work that we're doing, thinking about how much this could really impact someone's life. And is the research that you're doing now human subject research? Tell me a little bit more about your research. Okay, so I am currently working to develop new neural interfaces. So mainly this will be really small scale electrodes that we'll put into the brain to record electrical activity. I'm developing these electrodes and then testing them in non-human primates. So that's kind of our animal model that we're working with in my lab right now. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of us have heard about putting electrodes on the brain. This is something that like jumps onto our, our news feed occasionally, that they've put mm-hmm. some incredible device in the brain. So what are you doing that's new here with these electrodes? So my research is using different materials for the electrodes. So generally, these electrodes are made out of gold or platinum because those don't react in the body and your body doesn't reject them when you put them inside and they conduct electricity well. So they're able to pick up the really small electrical signals that are happening in your brain. But what I'm looking to do is create carbon fiber probes. So these are really, really thin probes that allow you to kind of go and access deeper parts of the brain on a really small scale without causing damage to the brain tissue. Why do we need electrodes on the brain? What kinds of applications are these electrodes that you're designing useful for? The brain is definitely a pretty elusive thing, and a lot of people, I feel like, don't know very much about it. And because of that, I think the treatments we have for a lot of neuro-based disorders and diseases are pretty limited. So think about mental health. There's a lot of different antidepressants or antipsychotic medication that can help, but what can also help, and this has been seen in studies with PTSD and a few other things, is that electrical stimulation, um, really targeted electrical stimulation, can also help relieve the symptoms of depression or anxiety or PTSD. They are a little bit more effective and have less side effects than medications. And then also you don't have to worry about having to take your pills every day or having sudden shifts in medication or moving and things changing slightly between batches or anything like that. And it's just kind of nice because it's kind of like a one and done surgery, hopefully. Like you just go in, you get this put in and now you're feeling a lot better. And obviously there's tuning and checkups, but overall it's probably a little bit of a less intensive procedure on the patient. And it also gives hope for treatment for other things. Like if you're able to connect into the brain and stimulate different parts or get feedback from certain parts, you can kind of reconnect body systems. 
So one really cool application that isn't quite related to what I'm hoping to go into, but it's still really love reading about is any sort of traumatic injuries that sever spinal cords or anything like that. So when you get injured and your spinal cord gets severed or you have some kind of accident where it results in paralysis, what happens is your brain no longer communicates with certain parts of your body because those communication pathways have been cut off. But what you can do is with these devices, you could kind of recreate those pathways. And yeah, it might not be through the same way it was before, but you still have a working pathway that allows you to regain use of body parts. So one of the, this actually was one of the patients I saw in that panel I was talking about earlier. He was a paraplegic and then he had very limited use in his hands. He was able to do reaching tasks so he could move his arm back and forth, but he didn't have enough control over his hands to be able to pick up objects. And basically what they did is they put Um, a sensor in his brain that communicated to muscles in his arm. Using wiring through that system, they were able to allow him to regain function of his hand and pick up small objects. And yeah, it didn't go through his spinal cord or through the nerves in his arm, but it was still a working pathway. Why do we need to access deeper parts of the brain? What's the purpose of, of getting at these other parts of the brain that we haven't before? It gives us a lot more access to different disease states or neural disorders. So, oh, this is where I should know more about neuroanatomy than I do. But so, you know, you've got a lot of your cortical structures closer to the surface. So you can access your visual cortex, your somatosensory cortex, your motor cortex. Those are all great and fine. And we know we've gotten a decent understanding because they're pretty accessible because they are near the surface of your brain. But if you go deeper, you get to some of the more involuntary systems and that's where those are controlled. So the deeper structures are where some more disease states lie that we haven't found a super good uh, treatment for solution. Oh no, the big one that comes to mind is epilepsy. So that happens a lot in your hippocampus and that is a deeper brain structure that's harder to access because it is protected by your cortex. So the devices that we hear about in hospitals or on the news and stuff nowadays, what are the problems there that you think need to be overcome? We've developed a lot of different electrodes that are really good in short-term studies, and they'll stay in there for even right now up to a couple years and have no issues. But if you're looking for patients who are looking for a lot longer solutions that don't involve repeat surgeries, then that's kind of where it starts to fall short. These electrodes degrade over time and either completely break down mechanically because of different stresses going on in the area, or your body will have a response to them. Your brain is very, very, well, your body in general, but your brain especially will react pretty strongly to anything that doesn't really belong there. So eventually you'll build up a scar surrounding these electrodes. And if you build up that scar, the electrode can't do its purpose anymore. So the idea or the big hope is creating new devices that don't elicit that same response and cause less damage. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Those sorts of stories are so fascinating to hear but i can also hear the the naysayers in the back like this sort of stuff requires brain surgery so 
how useful do you think these sorts of things could really be at the end of the day? Who is it good for? Yeah, that is one of the big struggles is it is still a fairly new field. And because of that, there's still a lot of downsides to it. So one thing that comes to mind is deep brain stimulation for pain management or epilepsy. Those are currently devices that are on the market, but they're sort of last ditch efforts of like, if nothing else has worked, we can try this because it's very invasive. So there's definitely a long way that the field has to go before this is really a viable option for the public. I think. But I guess I just, I don't know, I get excited about it and the idea that there are other ways to tackle some of these problems that just gives us a better kind of repertoire in order to help people. Because medication works for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And just being able to have other options, I think, is such an important thing. So I guess that's kind of where I see it. Yeah, there definitely is a lot more that needs to be done before we kind of get to that point. But I still think it's very exciting that it even is on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, it's so exciting. This might be kind of a silly question, but these electrodes that you're talking about, how small are they? And and how do you make something that small? It definitely depends on the specific application. The specific devices that I will be working with will have recording sites around the order of 5 to 10 microns. And the devices... As a whole, I'm hoping to be about 500 microns. So to kind of put that into perspective, because what are microns? The width of a strand of hair is about 100 microns on average. So think about just putting together five strands of hair, and that is hopefully about the size of the device that we'll be putting into your brain. And this will ideally have 32 to 64 channels, so that allows us to get 32 to 64 inputs at a time that we can record from and get lots of different information from yourselves. So these are very, very small things and they definitely require a lot of training and like to handle and make. And when it comes to making them, this is what I've been doing a lot lately and I get really excited about it. We get to use a facility called a clean room where a lot of different electronics are generally fabricated. So usually when you say clean room, you think of the really small chips that go into computers and cell phones. The big purpose behind a clean room is to get rid of any sort of contaminants that might exist in the air or in the general environment. So there's air filtering that is happening constantly. And then in order to enter this facility, you have to put on a full like head to toe clean room suit that are affectionately called bunny suits. And the ones I used to wear were bright orange. They were quite stylish, loved it. And so you've got boots, a full like bodysuit, you're wearing a hood and a face veil, and you've got safety glasses and gloves on, and that's just to enter the facility. And then once you're in there, there's ultra-filtered air constantly. Everything that you're working with is in either a vacuum environment or a fume hood, so there's still a lot of airflow. And that just helps to get rid of any sort of dust or anything that can kind of contaminate your samples. I don't, I feel like it's a kind of common trope that a grain of sand can ruin an entire computer. And that's because your electronics are so small that even one small impurity can affect the performance of the entire device. So we make use of these facilities to create these really, really small devices using big fancy equipment and kind of crazy chemicals. But it's really cool because... I feel like not very many people get to use those sort of facilities, especially 
women right now um, with just how kind of unfortunately unequal the field is right now with electrical engineering and how few women there are there. So it's kind of fun being usually one of the few women in the clean room kind of working all day and getting to work on biological devices too because everyone in there is just making transistors and well those are really important and they've led to crazy technology that we have now. I just like being a little bit different in there and still having other uses of it. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. I also work in a clean room, so I can empathize with your excitement of all these cool things that you get to make in a fancy clean room. And also, I just wanted to add, too, maybe if you're a listener and you've seen, like, a, you know, stereotypical lab on TV, sometimes what they're showing is an attempt at showing a clean room, which is kind of funny, too. Yeah, you'll see the air showers in there. Those are always a big thing. Of you kind of have to go through this air shower and spin around in it a couple times before you're able to enter because it's the idea is to just blow off all of the contaminants you might have. They're just very dramatic almost. Yes, very dramatic. I remember when I first started working in a clean room, I would send my friends and family so many selfies and stuff because I was like, I feel so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's yeah, it's so funny and unique. And yeah, you just look, you do look kind of ridiculous that it's just, it's, It's great. Awesome. And you mentioned too before that you are going to use these on non-human primates. Can you tell us what you mean by that and and what exactly that means for you as a researcher? Yeah, so my lab is uses non-human primate models to do our research. So we kind of have a couple different focuses in our lab. There's me and a couple other students who focus on devices, and we are making devices to put into the brain and validate that we can get recordings and get useful information from them. But we also have some of our lab that does behavioral tests, and we have the overarching goal of looking into novel ways to understand and treat mental health disorders. Um, That's kind of a background influence in our lab. So we have a couple students that do behavioral research with the non-human primates, and we work specifically with rhesus macaques. Why is it important to use animals in your lab, like monkeys, to do your research? Well, animal research is definitely tough, and it's something that I've had to kind of work to come to terms with. It's still definitely an important part of our field, Because there's still just so much that is unknown about the brain. And you use these different models to get better understanding of different structures and mechanisms that are happening inside of your brain when you're doing different activities. So it's kind of interesting to see what models are used with what application. So if you think about mice and rat models... They're smaller animals, they're pretty easy to kind of get a hold of and do surgical practices with because they're so small. You can get really basic neuroscience research done because if you think about it, everyone sleeps, everyone looks, everyone feels what's going on around them. And in these these smaller animals that aren't don't have as high levels of intelligence, their circuits are simplified and those circuits are kind of the more main function of the brain compared to humans, where a lot of our function goes to thinking and um, 
and our personalities. Like we have so much more going on in our brain when you compare us to mice specifically. Like all mice do is they run around, look for food, try to reproduce, and that's kind of their lives. So if you look at their brains, their brains have evolved to optimize those functions and they have those circuits and mechanisms in there so we can study those in mice because those are really easy animals to kind of get to gain access to. But when we want to understand more complex processes or behaviors, we have to go up to more complex organisms like non-human primates. So since we since my lab is interested in how trauma affects the brain and how we can kind of recover from mental health, we have to go with animals that actually experience and go through some of those same things. So we have to go up to these non-human primates and work with those for our experiments. So let me also ask you this. You've mentioned a lot of interesting applications in the course of these questions, you know, about, you know, epilepsy and regaining some functions and mental health and all sorts of wonderful things. If you personally had to pick an application or a topic that you're really interested in and you want to work on more, what would it be and why? What has really grabbed my interest in recent years has been the mental health side. Partially because that's something that I've always struggled with and it's definitely tough going through some of those struggles. And I mean, grad school is tough on everyone. It's pretty common to have some struggles with those. And even nowadays with some more attention being drawn and understanding about it, it's definitely much more of a common thing and it's becoming more and more destigmatized. But there is still a stigma around it. So it's something that I see as really important to find better treatments for and find gain a better understanding of because we're seeing, I feel like, more and more how much it really impacts everyone's lives. And thinking more to society as a whole, to a lot of the population that's unhoused right now struggles because of undiagnosed mental health issues. And... A lot of people don't really give a lot of thought to them and are prejudiced when they encounter them. And that's something that is always just not quite sat right with me. So my hope is going more into this field, I'm not only able to create better treatments, but also just bring a lot more awareness about it and help with some of the destigmatization so that everyone is able to get better access to better care and live better lives. Yeah, that's such a good answer. I love that. So one more question, Megan. Okay. If someone listening to this episode were to understand or remember one thing from what you've said, what do you want to spotlight? So what I think I want to spotlight is that there's a lot of cool and interesting treatments that maybe people don't think of first off that are kind of coming up on the horizon. And yes, they're still new and it might be a while before they're kind of commonly accessible, but the idea that we can have better treatment for epilepsy or Parkinson's or mental health disorders, I just think is really exciting and cool and not something that necessarily everybody knows. So I think that's definitely something that I want to try and get to be better known knowledge because you can get more people excited about it 
will definitely help push the field further. Yes, there's always such wonderful things going on in science, and the stuff that you work on is not only so fascinating, but has so much potential to help a lot of people. So it's really exciting to hear that there's a lot going on in your neck of the woods. And if people listening to this episode were really curious about some of the stuff that you've been talking about, is there a way that they can learn more or contact you? Yeah, so I am on Twitter. That's probably going to be the best way to kind of interface with me at all, at least. Um, and that is at Meg N underscore Baker. So that's M-E-G-N underscore B-A-K-E-R. And then I also am working on a website. It's very rough right now, but hopefully in the future it's getting it's going to improve and look a little bit more professional. But it is mnbakerscience.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan. It's been so lovely to talk to you and get to hear more about your work. Yeah, it's so so awesome talking to you too. And especially because we do have similar fields, it's really fun to have both of us just get really excited quickly and definitely get carried away, but it's great talking about it. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. (laughs) And thank you so much to everyone who's listening. I want to remind all of you to do all of the wonderful things that help us grow this podcast. Rate, review, subscribe, share it with your friends and family, share it with all the people that you think love science or should love science. Um, Everyone should hopefully Uh, be able to get some lovely knowledge out of these podcast episodes. If you want to connect with the podcast, you can do so mostly on Twitter, honestly. Um, That's where I post most of my stuff, all the announcements and episode descriptions and everything. You can find us on Twitter at SpotlightThePod. And I want to remind you, too, that this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter also, at SPOTForceNU. And finally, one last big shout-out to my podcast team that helps me put this together, especially Nicholas Scruton Alvarado. This episode would not be possible without all of them. So thank you. Thank you.